0: Hey, good morning, everybody. So, the the question that that came up was was what was Paro thinking? I, and, and then we're going to go from there into everything else. So, we have this week where B'nai Israel are crossing the sea. Last week we finished all the ten plagues. We had the last three plagues, including locusts. Then we had darkness. Then we have the killing of the firstborn. And basically, Paro tells him, get out of here. Don't come back, just leave. A week later, he has a change of heart. And what what gives him the strength to have that change of heart is his belief still in Abu Dazzara in the idolatry of Egypt. We have to understand that that's something very, very real and something to understand because... Maybe it relates to us in a number of ways, so it says the, so they told the king of Egypt Ki, that the nation had fled, and whatever that means it's he maybe he had this thought that they would be returning after three days and they weren't returning and it says his heart changed. and his servants also El haam. With relation to the people And they said What did we do? We, we, we sent out Israel from serving us So the Egyptians were steeped in Avodah in this We, we translate Avodah Zarah as strange service We, in our own language, call it idolatry We acknowledge it many, many times During the Seder, we say If Hashem had punished the Egyptians but didn't destroy their gods, Dayeno. What does that mean, didn't destroy their gods? If we say that the gods are nonsense, fake, wooden stone that can't do anything, why would we even have to acknowledge the nonsense of destroying their gods? In addition, Hashem tells Moshe last week, Upon all the gods of Egypt, I'm going to execute judgment. What does that mean? Is there other gods that God is going to execute judgment against? What does that mean against the gods? Next week, we read Pashat Yitro with the Ten Commandments. And Yitro says in the Torah, Atayadati, now I know, ki gadol Adonai ha'elohim, that God is greater than all the other gods. Again, what does that mean, God is greater than all the other gods? Rashi tells us, that Yitroah had a full knowledge of every idol in the world. He left no idol unworshipped. The Orachayim HaKadosh writes, Yitzroah acknowledged that although all other nations have spiritual representation in the celestial region, some of who are very powerful, this is the Orachaim writing, so he's saying that there's real power to these forces, and they protect their protégés, and they assist them in their wars, he says they do not exact retribution from the adversaries. He says only God works midah keneged midah. And what was it that, well, that convinces Yitro? It's when God punishes the Egyptians in the sea and the Egyptians thought they would never be punished by water even though they threw the babies into the river. So God is punishing them midah keneged midah. But again, we're seeing that according to the rabbis, at least most of the rabbis, there's a real power to Abu Zarah. And then jump into the Ten Commandments next week. We start the Ten Commandments. It says, <laughs> I'm God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. And then what's the next statement? <laughs> you should have no other gods in front of me. What does that mean, no other gods in front of me, if there's no such thing as, as gods? Rabbi Bachia writes, we are not to accept any of God's angel, agents, forces known as Elohim, as deities for ourselves, nor any of the other horoscopes as guiding our fates. The word akhirim, others, is explained to mean they're different, they're false to those who serve them. Another explanation, he says, of the meaning of the word akhirim is that their people serve different gods every single day. On Sunday, they serve the sun. On Monday, they serve the moon. That's why Sunday is called Sunday, and Monday is called Monday. And on the another day, they worship gold. Another day, they worship silver. And he goes through all these things. That's why they're <laughs> So He says that Hashem is telling us later on, don't bow to another alien source. You're not to worship them because, he says, because... Only the true source of power, the God of Israel, who does not derive his power from an external source. So, th- so we're saying that these powers have power. There's a real dark side that has power. Rambam, Maimonides, who really doesn't give any power to the, the dark side. He says it's nonsense. He still goes back to look at the history of Abu Zarah. And he talks about it, and he says, look, the whole, the whole northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was steeped in Avodah Zarah. We had the breakup of the kingdom. We had Yehuda and Yisrael. All Yisrael was always Abu Zarah. And even in Yehuda, there was tremendous, tremendous Avodah Zarah. There's a story told that uh, one of the rabbis was giving a class, and he was talking about the different kings who were steeped in Avodah Zarah. And he says, we're going to talk about our friends, Menasheh, uh, he had a dream that night that Menasheh came and he says, I'm going to kill you. He says, what do you mean you're going to kill me? He says, who are you to call me your friend? And he asked him a question in Halakha, which the rabbi couldn't answer. And he asked Menasheh how to answer it. Menasheh told him the answer. And he says to Menasheh, if you're so brilliant in halacha, how is it possible that you could succumb to Avodah zara? And Menashe says, if you lived in my generation, you would have been running in front of me, lifting up the hems of your coat to chase the Abu Zarah. So the Abu Zarah had a real power. How do we understand the power that Abu Zarah has? Because we say that in this world, everything is always 50-50. There's always a balance. You have a balance between Hashem and a balance between no Hashem. So there always has to be something to challenge you not to serve Hashem. In a world where Hashem was very real, where we had a Bet HaMikdash, and we saw miracles every single day, and instead of going to the doctor, you went to the Navi to ask what to do. In that same world, the dark side was also very real. But where does the dark side get its strength? In Christianity, you have the concept of the devil opposing God. In Judaism, we don't have that concept. Everyone is God's servant and everyone has power from God. So Rambam says, where did he ask the question, where did people come up with Abu And he says, it was faulty thinking from the children of Adam. We have in the days of Enosh, what happened was the, the people understood that God had created the sun and created the moon and created all of the stars and the stars basically were the vehicle through which the energy of God would come to this world. So just like a king who has high ministers, if you're inviting the minister to dinner, you're giving the minister tremendous respect because he's a minister of the king. So the people then felt that they had to give respect to these astrological forces at that time And what they started doing was They were serving those forces As if those forces were independent powers They looked at them as independent powers They knew that there was a God But God had created the world And left the world to run With those ministers And based on the system of of, of what they had They were able to get things through those powers Yes um, You know we should lose our tava for the uh, for avodah zara. What does that mean? We should lose our tava for, for avodah zara. Just to answer, why don't we have this desire to have avodah zara anymore? Because at that period when the first temple was destroyed, the reality of God was diminished. You understand what I'm saying? During the first temple, you came to the temple and you were able to experience and see miracles every single day. Once God hid behind the wall, once we have this concept of Hester Panim, so God is less real. If God is less real, then what has to be less real? The Avodah Zarah or we don't have a 50-50 balance. So that's why the desire for Avodah Zarah decreases at that period. But until that period, there's definitely Abu Zarah. And we see in Egypt, and Egypt is, is after the, the flood. So he, he says that basically once they established this idea, they began building temples to the stars, offering sacrifices to the stars, praising them and glorifying them. This was the explanation of those who worshipped and who knew the origins of worship. They didn't deny the existence of God. But they said he gave everything over to the ministers. And they were able to get from the ministers what they needed. They were able to give to this side in order for us, to, again, to have this 50-50 balance. It had to be in a, a reality. So once they, they got that far, then you have, you have prophets and false prophets. And you have people that say, I'm God. Because it's very easy to be the king and say, well, I'm not just the king, I'm God. The way Rambam expresses it in the Chumash, he says that Hashem delegates responsibility, as it were, to various mazalot, by which Rambam likely meant angels, but translates as natural forces. Those mazalot aren't independent of Hashem. They simply generally work as they're supposed to, but are always susceptible to divine intervention. Now, although we have Shem and Ever and Noach and all these people, the first person to really step up and fight this is Abraham. And that's a whole story to go through what Abraham saw when he was young and how he, he did it. But let's look at Egypt. <coughs> the society in which Bnei Israel lived for 210 years integrates them. Bnei Israel become part of the Egyptians. Everything that's their culture, they, they take on their own for themselves. The first time Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, what do they do? What's the sign to prove they were sent by God? <coughs> they throw the staff things. They throw the staff at the at the at the ground and it turns into a tanin. So tanin is not a snake, even though we translate snake. Tanin may be even a crocodile, but not know. Man the Egyptians and the Israelites knew that the god Sobek, depicted as a man with the head of a crocodile, was Pharaoh's personal god. So by throwing this on the floor and having their staff eat the other staffs, what they're saying to Pharaoh at that point is, you have your personal god, but our god is over your personal god. It had to shake him up somewhat and then he strengthens himself to say, no, I still have everything else. What else does he have? So my brother Victor wrote about the gods of Egypt. He said, we don't see so much in the writings of the sages, but we're going to identify four of them he brings. he brings The four of them that he brings are the ministering angel, or the sar, which we see a number of times mentioned by the rabbis, the sar of Mitzrayim, which is the firstborn of Egypt. According to the Shelah HaKadosh, the ministering angel, or the Tsar of Mitzrayim, is the most highly placed among all of the 70 celestial representatives of the nations. So, There's a Tsar, there's a ministering angel, there's 70 ministering angels over the seven ministering nations. The highest one he brings is the one over Egypt. Meaning it has real power, more than any of the others. And where does it have its power? God gave him the power. When we see the slaying of the firstborn, we have a physical revelation that the Shekhinah had begun its ascent back to the proper level, which unseats this ministering angel of Egypt, and that's what we see the Torah saying: "I am going to take out, uh, I am going to take out vengeance against the gods of Egypt." That's one of them. The next astrological force that the Egyptians associated themselves with is the lamb or the ram, which is depicted by the sign of Aries. We already were taught that the Mitzrim considered the sign of the zodiac Aries uh, as a physical, that's why they didn't eat sheep, that's why it was disgusting to them, the the whole idea. This constellation of Aries is the first of the 12 astrological periods. Mm -hmm. In order to humiliate Egypt's control over the astrological constellation, the Naisrael were commanded to acquire a lamb, lock it up for four days, have it make noise in front of them, and then consume it as Korban Pesach. So if you're looking at this sheep as a representative of your God, it's not God. The same way that if you ask a Catholic, is the cross God? None of them are going to tell you. But if if you took a cross and burned it in the middle of a whatever, what would they do to you? Lynch the Jews. They any excuse, right? Someone said But that's it, it's a representative of their deity. So what happens is when we have the night of the fifteenth of Nisan, Passover, when we kill that force, we're actually in essence killing that force of Aries, which the Egyptians are saying are protecting them. There's another one that he brings, which is Baal Siphon. We're gonna leave that for a minute. And the last one he brings is the sun deity called Ra. Ra So we have to see that Ra was the one that Pharaoh was depending on more than any of the others. Pharaoh's name is Ramses, Ramses meaning son of Ra. Pharaoh looked at himself as the son of Ra, who came from the Nile, and he's the God of Egypt. But Ra, the sun God, is what protects him. If you look at the last three plagues that affect Egypt, you have locusts. In the Torah, the description of locusts a number of times says that the eye of earth was covered and there was complete darkness. The locusts start, it says the wind blew the whole night, the morning came, and then the locusts came and turned the day into night. During the plague of locusts, you basically had darkness for seven days because the locusts covered everything. So that locust plague is not simply a plague of locusts, it's a plague of darkness. The next plague is darkness, three days, and then solid darkness, three days, whatever that is, again against Ra. The last plague takes place when? At midnight, which should have been the time of the power of both Ra and the Aries, because it was the full moon. Ra also means evil. Rock. Yeah. So that's where Parod tells B'nai Israel, Rak ra'a, only evil awaits you in the desert. He sees that every single Israelite who's leaving Egypt will die in the desert. And he's warning Moses and saying, Moses, you're going to the desert? They will all die in the desert. I know it. Evil is waiting for them in the desert. Thank you're... Pharaoh to, to to Moses on a number of occasions, he says Ra Ra, and he's using he sees the blood. Oh, he's so he's, saying, so he's saying Ra meaning the god Ra, or Ra meaning evil is waiting for Moses in the desert. When we translate, he says only evil is waiting. He's saying they're all going to die. Why are you leaving here? They're all going to die. And was Pharaoh wrong? No. No. They all die in bizarre, the desert. That he, that he didn't want to go in the first place. Rabbi Sachs goes <laughs> further. Like left, so th- that the, the reason we end up doing the blood in the blood on that night was to overcome some of that power. Rabbi Sachs says the plagues were not only intended to punish Pharaoh, but they were to show B'nai Israel because we were steeped in the idolatry of Egypt. You have to realize that when we cross the sea in this week's Perashah, when we cross through the, the split sea, wall to the left, wall to the right, there's still people carrying in the knapsack the Avodah mm. They're still so connected, even with everything so clear, they still have the insurance policy of the Avodah Zarah. So Rabbi Sachs brings, he says that the Nile was personified in ancient Egypt as the god Hapi. And was worshipped as the source of fertility. And he says that the water that came from the Nile, they praised this god. And therefore, the first plague is blood in order to show that this god's not working. The second plague is associated with Heket. Heket is the goddess who attended the births. She's depicted in all Egyptian uh, mythology as a woman with the head of a frog. frog. She's the one who helps birth. We have the second plague. He brings each plague is associated with a different God of Egypt in order to show that the God of Egypt had no power. And therefore, they had to show not the Egyptians that their gods had no power. They had to show B'nai Israel that the gods had no power. What's interesting is when it comes to the dark side, when it comes to idolatry, it's very, very physical. It's physical. It's not spiritual. Meaning, you, the witch, for example, who's practicing witchcraft, and you have to understand that when we see Moshe comes to the mountain and God says to him, take off your shoes because the ground is holy. That ground is holy, but the rest of the ground is not. Why is the rest of the ground not holy? Because when Adam sinned, the earth was cursed. When Cain killed Hevel, and the blood of Hevel went into the ground, God told him, the bloods of your brother are screaming from the ground. As man sinned generation to generation until Noah, the earth itself became a place of impurity to the extreme, to the point where the flood wipes off a layer of earth in order to remove some level of the impurity. When Abraham comes, he starts bringing the world back to purity. By the time Jacob has the 12 sons, they believe the world is back to purity, and the earth is cured. When they sell Joseph, what do they do with the money that they, use, that they sold Joseph? What do they, what do they do with the money? It says they bought shoes. Why did they buy shoes? Because they believe since Joseph wasn't pure the earth was still cursed and they needed shoes to protect themselves from the impurity of the ground. When a witch practices her witchcraft, the Gemara talks about it, different things talk about it, she's always planted on the ground with her bare feet because she's drawing from the ground the negativity or the dark side in order to practice the witchcraft. Well, you used to pray in the temple with bare feet. Ah, So the temple itself is Kodesh. That's the same, is holy. The same as Moses being told, take off your shoes because this ground is holy. In the temple, you weren't allowed to wear the shoes, the Kohanim, because you had to connect there because of all the earth, that was holy ground with no negativity whatsoever. Outside, you had to wear shoes to protect you from the negativity, so we don't go onto the temple now. No, um, <laughs> Grounding. We're gonna tell Sammy. People head do it. I it I it's definitely. I. I. From. Well, I mean, look. I walk on the beach. beach. I'm not telling you. I don't walk on the beach. But there's definitely an idea that a person should wear shoes to protect themselves from the negativity of the earth being cursed. But what about the positive? I don't, I don't know enough. Really? When we're praying, we're supposed to. Be you should there? definitely cover your feet. No. Really? When you're praying? Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah a person yeah, should yeah. definitely cover their feet. And even feel, even a person I feel much like better without... It. And I heard you at home? Barefoot? When yeah, yeah, praying, I don't know why the candles or should Yeah, a person shouldn't be barefoot. I thought it's better. I don't know why I heard you spoke because it's what the waiter told me No, but no. no a ba- person should definitely not be barefoot. And I was at show my foot or something. You gotta wash your hands. I said, no, no. You always I learn that when you, that when you you wash I your hands. before you pray, they say you don't like form wood. Yeah, I'll You should be pray, uh, covered at home when you're praying? Your or feet? Your feet. You definitely should should... I mean, can you wear sandals? No, you could wear no, sandals. Should, could should we st- just never knew that you be something... Women? You shouldn't be barefoot. You shouldn't be barefoot. you need to be barefoot. you Really? Did you do so that you're barefoot? No, you shouldn't be barefoot. No, you shouldn't. Because your feet can be touching your in your own home. I just We just say that a person you shouldn't be barefoot. You see no, 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 no. So like I think you, a person shouldn't be barefoot when they pray. Like, let's say you get up and you up. No, no, no. For sure you're barefoot. You're barefoot. You're Absolutely barefoot. barefoot. Yes, you're, you're barefoot. Dead. You're, barefoot. No? you're getting dead. even out of bed. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It it. And you're doing Netila, you're still barefoot. You're so I'm right. not going to tell you that. You I'm, I'm not going to tell you. So again, I, I can tell you that we don't have... Because God is in some ways hidden... The avodah, that type of avodah zarah, is very hidden, because we don't really have open miracles today. We don't really have open avodah zarah today. I thought so, that was because the rabbi they prayed to not have. Avodazara. So that's why I say they only pray because we. I think I think that that whole story is because Hashem had to keep it fifty fifty. Once Hashem is hidden, the avodah zarah has to be hidden. So am I going to tell you that it's if you if you pray without your shoes on? I don't think it's gonna. You know, but it's probably better to have better with, with something on your feet when you pray. So I just want to go through just a, a few of the pesukim to show all the, how much more is in the verses to understand than we normally would see in the verse if we just went, went through it. So last week, we had, a, last week, and that's what, what we're going to do because if we understand what happened last week, then we can understand what happens this week, why Paros suddenly gets the, the strength in order to to go after them. It says, So this is after we have the ninth plague. The ninth plague was darkness. So, And he says, Just go and worship God. Get out of here already. He says just one thing. Because we saw before, Moses asked, can I, can I, can we go? And he says, you could go, but leave the kids and the old people. Now he says, you could take everybody. He says, only one thing. Just leave your herds behind. Don't take all your sheep. Only take your children and go and worship. Go with them and worship. Take everyone, go. Just leave the flocks. What does Moshe answer? It's very strange, his answer. He doesn't say we want your we want sheep, we're gonna take our sheep. He tells him, you are going to give us your sheep that we should sacrifice on your behalf. And we're gonna take your sheep and offer them to God. Like, where does Moshe come up with this to tell Paro that we have to take your sheep from where? And then he continues, Moshe, Also, we're going to take our sheep. So we're going to take your sheep. You're going to give us sheep that we should sacrifice to Hashem for you. He says, Lord, nothing's going to remain in Egypt because we don't know what God wants us to do. And then it says the next pasuk, God has to harden Pharaoh's heart. Because maybe Pharaoh would have gone with this idea. He didn't agree to send them. So the question that you have here is, what does it mean God hardened his heart? If we say that man has free will, is it fair that Pharaoh is being told by God, you want to send them? I'm not going to let you. I'm going to go against your free will. So the reality is he's not going against his free will. God hardening his heart is basically giving Pharaoh the ability to have a 50-50 decision again. What's happening if someone comes to you with a gun and says, give me your wallet, what are you gonna do? Give, give, give them your wallet. Do you really have free choice whether or not you're gonna give them your wallet? It's real, you have to do it. But if what if you were a kung fu expert who could take your left leg and hit the guy in the head before he knows what's happening? Then you might not give him your wallet because he might be able to take his gun before he could even think of doing anything. So if you have an extra strength to go against the gun Then what happens at that point? Your choice is 50-50. Either you give the wallet or you don't. You have a choice. He has a gun, but you have your martial arts. What Hashem is doing is saying, Moshe is putting a gun to Paro's head. So what do I have to do in order to give Paro 50-50? Because we always have to have 50-50. I have to strengthen him so that he can make a decision, not based on fear, but based on reality. If on Saturday I tell you, touch the light, and you touch the light, and you get a lightning bolt, are you going to touch the light again? No, because you lose your, you lose your free choice. The world always has to offer us free choice. That's a huge lesson that all of us have to know. We always have free choice. So now... Explain why the first five... So, <laughs> so the, the other opinion is, the first five times Parol hardened his own heart, he was obstinate. And then one opinion is because he did that, God punished him. But the other opinions say no. God had to give him strength in order to be able to have free choice. So it says, So Parot now tells Moshe, Get out from front of me. Now Parot was definitely afraid of Moshe. He didn't try to ever kill him. He didn't do anything against him. Because he saw this guy was walking in the palace. None of the guards would stop him. None of the dogs would stop him. None of the lions guarding the palace would stop him. This guy is definitely from some other power. Now he changes his whole tune and he tells him, get away from me. And not only that, he lecha, watch yourself. Don't continue to see my face. Because on the day you see my face, he tells Moses, you will die. He doesn't tell him, I will kill you. He tells him, you will die. There's people who want to kill you. I'm going to let them kill you. Moshe says, no, nah. Hashem already told me they're all dead. But now Paro tells him, you're not coming back to me ever again. Now what happens? Moshe responds. Layom Moshe. Kandi Just like you spoke. Lo I will not continue to see your face. Now it seems like the chapter is over. Because in the, Torah, in the Chumash, the Goyim separated to another chapter but it's not really another chapter because Moses is still standing in front of Pharaoh and we have these really strange conversations now between him and God while he's standing in front of Pharaoh in the palace. Here's the ne- next problem. God never speaks to Moses in the palace, nor does he ever speak to him in the city because those are filled with Avodah And God is not going to come in this place that has tremendous tu'ah. Here though, at this moment, standing there in front of Paro, it's almost like Paro told him, you're never going to see my face. Okay, I'm never going to see your face. One second. I got a phone call on my uh, AirPod. I'm going to bring one more, one more plague against Paro and on Egypt. After that, they're going to send you and they're going to throw you out of here from this. So now, Hashem now continues to have this conversation with Moses with something that has absolutely nothing to do with this and could have come later on. The nabeos speak in the ears of the people, of the Jewish people. They should ask among their friends. So the Jews should ask the Mitzrim and a woman should ask the, her, her Mitzrim neighbor for dishes Of silver and gold. Why dishes of silver and gold? She doesn't say jewelry, not to give me rings, not to give me this, not to give me necklace, not to give me bracelet. She should ask for dishes. Dishes of silver and gold. What's that all about? (laughs) But this is asking the regular people, not the palace. The The regular people, I'm asking for dishes of silver and gold. What's that for? And why is that here? Keep going. We're going to come right back. And then then God doesn't tell him much more, but now Moshe turns to Paro while he's standing there. This is what God says. At about midnight, I'm going to come into Egypt. And every firstborn is going to die from the firstborn of Paro who sits on his chair until the firstborn of the servant uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the firstborn of the cattle So w- what's happening What's this whole conversation Why does God appear So it seems if we look at all the gods of Egypt By the time we get to the end of the ninth plague All of the gods of Egypt In essence are dead Dead because they've been shown To have no power So at that moment There's no more gods of Egypt in the palace. There's no more negative force because a negative force requires someone to believe in it in order for it to have power. So the Egyptian people at that point gave up on their gods. When you ask the Egyptian person to give you a plate of silver or a plate of gold, what would an Egyptian person be doing with a plate of silver or gold if they had it? What would the only thing they do? We have in our homes silver cups. We use silver cups for? Kiddush. Generally when you have silver, you're using it for? Some ritual. So you're going to the Mitzri and you're telling them, your gods are dead. You know your gods are dead. Give us the plates and let us use those plates for what? To serve Hashem to make offerings to Hashem. Now what happens is, the, the Egyptians, that's why Hashem could come to Moshe at that point. That's why the Egyptians are willing to go and say that, that, that we're going to give it to you. And then, but Moshe turns to Paro, and he says to Paro, they're the firstborn are all going to die at midnight. Now if you're Paro, and midnight comes, what are you going to be doing at midnight? You're going to be awake, worried, and say, what's going to go? Because his firstborn son, he's also a firstborn. All of Egypt, and not only that, we say that he, that the firstborn, the firstborn killed Egypt. What does that mean, the firstborn killed Egypt? The Midrash tells us that the firstborn of Egypt, when they heard this, they told Paro, let them go. And he said, no, I'm not letting them go. So what happened when he didn't let them go? There was a revolution in Egypt and it says 60,000 people died from the revolution in Egypt because the firstborns were angry. Now you're telling Pyro the firstborn are going to die. He's not accepting it. How does he not accept it? Because he still has faith. He still has faith in this power of Aries that will protect him on the full moon of the month of Aries. This is going to protect him. But it also said that Jews have to turn back in front of them was so that's what we, that's the next that's the next parasha. So at midnight, when the when when his last at midnight when his last hope is dead, which is Aries, then he says to Moses, "Get out, just go. I have no more hope." When does he get the strength to say that I can go and attack them again? When they get stuck in front of the sea. And the Pasuk says in front of Baal Safon, the idol of Baal Safon. So, what does he believe at that point? He believes that he still has one card to play. That card is that Baal Safon must be more powerful than God, and therefore he has the strength to go and attack. Why did God keep that uh, In order for him in order for the Egyptians to go and follow, to give them the hope. Because again, he's giving them a 50-50 choice. Do I let them go or do I stay? As long as I see, this, as long as I see that I have power, I'm not afraid to go after them. And they go after them again on their own free choice. So and, that, and that's why the Pasuk says, It says, And uBen Hayam lifne ba'al he literally sends them to sit in front of Baal Safon in order for them to uh, to to have this. So now, this whole idea of, of avodah zarah is a, is much wider than, than than we can imagine. What is avodah zarah in essence? Avodah zarah is when we it's it's when we give power to something other than God. We assign power to something other than God. I saw a a description from one of the rabbis, he writes, According to the Torah, idolatry entails a much wider definition than simply bowing down to a created image. Idolatry consists not only of one's actions, but also of one's thoughts. A person who thinks, Avodah Zarah, is the one sin that a person could be guilty. This does not limit idolatry to one believing that a physical object is worshipped, Idolatry is a much wider category that includes an individual's spiritual outlook. Idolatry can best be defined as the the deification of any created thing, being an object, concept, philosophy, or an individual. The object of deification, therefore, becomes the focal point of one's life and lifestyle. We have a horse. We have a ride. That, that's anything that a person really right. believes has power other than right. Hashem. So but they're not, not allowed good. to believe that. Absolutely not. Like, a- absolutely, everywhere. we shouldn't do any. We shouldn't attribute that? any power to anything other than Hashem. like, you know, <laughs> like not using. So that that you're taking something and you think it has power. It doesn't have power. If you're using it as a symbol to remind you. So the story I'll tell is the story about the red bracelet. So there are people, you know, Madonna's red bracelet, right? We're going to go buy it online. So you're going to buy the red bracelet online and that's going to protect you from all evil. What does that mean? Beryl Wine, Rabbi Beryl Wine tells a story about a Yankee. His name was Mike Paragarula Par- Par- or whatever. He was a third baseman for the Yankees, and he was going to be the guy after Mickey Mantle. He was going to be the great Yankee. He got injured the first spring training, the second spring training, the third spring training. They asked him, Mike, how are you going to avoid getting injured? He lifts up his hand, and he's wearing a red string. He says, my grandma brought it back from Sicily. This will protect me from getting the evil eye. Well, right. So now, where do we get the red string? Oh. Where do we get it from? Mm-hmm. Well, so we get it from Kever Raphael. How do you do it? So when we went the first time to Kever Rachel, when it was the old days, we actually did together. Where she was on one side, I was on the other. We, the lady gave us a big string. We went around the kever seven times, mm-hmm. and that's the string you can take, and you can make the red string. If you take now, you so the red string is supposed to protect you from ayin right? right? How? If you take the red string and you put it on and you say, this is to remind me of what? Of Rachel imenu, Then it works. Why? Because Rachel Imeinu was the one person who didn't have Ayin hara. She was supposed to marry Jacob. She lets her sister take her place and doesn't even tell her sister, you took my place. So she was willing to give up everything which would have made her marry Esau maybe. She was willing to give up everything for her sister she wasn't jealous if you could eliminate jealousy in your life by reminding yourself i should be like rachel then maybe it could work i got it but when we when we give when we give power to something so this the thing is there's a horse and a rider there's a body and a soul what do you give the power to the body or the soul the soul should really be the rider and not the horse but what do we do we put the horse more important than the rider there's a question when it comes, at, especially when the, when they talk about Abu Dazzara relating to Rome. One of the things is, do you eat to live, or do you live to eat? Because even food could become an Abu You're in Rome, they would eat a meal, they would go to a special room to get rid of everything they ate, they would come back and eat again. They would do it again and come back. And they would just enjoy everything they could enjoy, because the physical world became the Avodah Rabbi Mansur talks a lot about people how they make money, the Avodah because they think money is going to take care and, and do everything. There was a rabbi, he was giving a, a speech to people and he said, what happens when Chatz shalom? the doctor comes and tells a person that they have terrible sickness? And they tell him, you have six months to live. Does that person accept the doctor giving them that, or does the person have to believe that Hashem could do anything? Do I still go to the doctor? Yes. But the doctor has no right to tell me the end. He can tell me this is the prognosis. But I have to be able to believe that Hashem could do anything. We have the story of the Navi coming to Chizkiyahu, the king, and he tells him, prepare your will, because you are going to die. And Chizkiyahu turns to the wall, and says, I have a tradition from King David that even if the sword is on your neck, God could make a miracle. Does it mean the miracle is going to happen? We don't know. But what it means is a miracle is possible because we have to put our faith not into the, the doctor telling us the negative, but God exists over. It says that the best of the doctors go to Gehena. Why the best of the doctors go to Gehena? Because they think it's all about them. Rambam, who's a doctor to the, the, uh, the ruler of Egypt, to the sultan or whatever he was, what does he do? He tells you that a doctor, every time he treats a patient, has to pray that Hashem should heal the patient. Here's the greatest doctor in the world at the time. Not saying it's from me, but saying I have to do what I can do as a doctor, but I have to realize that in the end it's coming from Hashem. So the idea that we have today of Avodah Zarah is not to put our total trust and faith into anything or anyone, but Hashem. <clears throat> to always remember that everything in this world, just like the Avodah Zarah of the stars, of the moon, of the astrology, all those are, according to what Rambam is saying, servants of Hashem. The angels are all servants of Hashem. So who's the driving force? God. So if I say od mi levado, there's no one other than God, that's the strength. That's what I have to do. So in the Ten Commandments, when God says, Lo elohim there shouldn't be other gods in front of you. Hashem is telling us, Anochi Hashem, I'm God. Put your faith and trust in me. Because if you put your faith and trust completely in something else, you're guilty of? Avodazara. There are 613 commandments in the Torah. Almost 10% of them have to do with Avodah Zarah. It's crazy. We don't even think it exists. But in a way, we're all guilty of it. Because we put our faith and trust in something other than God. And we don't put our faith and trust in God. Also, Not to say that we don't have to make an effort. Sorry? Okay. Also, you can pray for your doctor. Right? I, I pray that the God gives me the doctor who's the right shaliach. It doesn't have to be the smartest doctor. You have right You have the right doctor. He's, um, you know, he's your doctor. So don't you pray for your doctor? Uh, yeah, but I'm still praying that Hashem is going to give me the rifua, the, the cure. I pray every day in the... In the, in the you in the, see what I'm saying? I mean, don't you pray for people that Hashem touches them? For them to touch you? Yeah, I'm so praying... how would you deal with a doctor that you're not praying for? No, I'm praying that that doctor is the messenger that God wants me to have in order to help me. So I'll tell someone that. You might think that the smartest doctor in the world is the best doctor for you. Or the this. There's this there's a doctor there that, that's going to be the messenger that's the one that Hashem wants for you. But you have to realize that the doctor is a tool. In the end, the cure is coming from God. You have to accept that. If you say, if so, someone said to me, it says, Tov be-rofim, Tov is is the, the the good ones of the doctor. Tov, you of 17. The word is 18. In the Amidah, we have 19 brachot, 19 blessings. It says that the that the one who only has 18, meaning he skips refa'enu, which is the prayer where you say, God, heal us. Okay? And in that prayer, when I get to refa'enu every day, I get to refa'enu, and before I get to the bracha, I have a list in my head of... X number of people, and I say, please Hashem, send a refuah shelema to these people, because in the end, it's all coming from you. Do I still go to the best doctor in the world that I can find? Yes. Do I tell my son he has to be the best doctor that he could be? Yes. Do I tell him it's his responsibility to do everything he can do to help all the people he can do? Yes. But in the end, he has to know that Hashem is going to make the decision. That's that's all I'm saying. That The bottom, the end the, the, the primary primary force is God. And everything else is just a conduit. If we understand it's a conduit with God as the primary, then we're good. If we think it's an independent force, that's why it's Elohim Acherim. If I think it's Acher, separate of God, independent of God, then I'm guilty of idolatry. Okay. Okay. Thank you.